Right, yeah. It's impossible to cover everything of Thomas Merton in two hours, um, so it will be a, a selection, a little potpourri, and it will be from my perspective. So um, Merton, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with Merton anyway. Are, are you, who's familiar with Merton? Put your hands up. Yeah, most of you, really. And I'm sure... Any of you members of the Merton Society? Yeah? So, so I mean, you, you probably know more about it than me. Um, I mean, the thing about Merton is that he has a great following, and I think everybody has their own take on Merton. Because Merton is such a huge person, really, in many ways, and he encompasses everything. Um, and you talk to two people about Merton and you'll get to... It's like when you talk, talk to two people about um, whoever, a friend, and you'll get two different versions of events. So I'm going to share with you uh, the base, basic life story and a bit, a bit of orientation with his writings and so forth. And then I'm just going to take up a few themes. One of the themes is I'm going to... We're just going to read together um, one of his little essays. Uh, I'll give it to you to photocopy so you can all have a read of it um, next week or whatever. Um, I'm also going to look at a theme that's, I think, very interesting. It's, it, and you find it very well uh, documented in this book on Merton and Sufism. So I wanted to say a little bit about Sufism uh, as well and the relationship between Merton and Sufism. I think that's quite important. And Merton, as, as we'll hear, was engaged with all the world faiths, which I suppose marks him out from John the Cross and Teresa of Avila and Thomas Traherne. By the time we get to Merton and our own world, he's one of us, he lives in our world, and he's engaging and reaching out with Buddhists and Muslims and Jews and Hindus and all, all other all points west in between. And I think this is fascinating because, in a way, he is a pioneer. In, in so many ways, he's a pioneer, but in this respect, he's a pioneer. And the work is still unfolding. And I think it's very relevant to the work of the Christian Meditation Centre, the work of Lawrence Freeman, John Main, um, the, the process of engagement and dialogue with other religions. I, uh, when we had the meditation, I hadn't really, as you probably gathered, <coughs> I hadn't really thought through what I was going to say, so let the spirit um, speak. And a sort of apocalyptic feeling came through, um, uh, perhaps related to the death of my friend on, on Sunday. Um, and then as I was meditating, what came to me was another lecture to novices, not the one I'm going to play tonight. Um, and this lecture to novices, he starts out with this Hasidic, um, whether it's a prayer or a statement, it's a Hasidic statement, and it says, let everyone cry out to God and lift his heart up to God as if he were hanging by a hair, and he's, at this point he makes a joke about the fact that if you have as little hair as he's got, that's quite urgent. And a tempest were raging to the very heart of heaven, and he were at a loss for what to do, and there were hardly time to cry out. It is a time when no counsel indeed can help someone, and he has no refuge save to remain in his loneliness and lift his eyes and his heart up to God and cry out to him. And this should be done at all times, for in the world we are in great danger. And he says, when the life of prayer really begins to get somewhere, you feel this, you realise personally and existentially the tremendous seriousness of your life of prayer. Not an, as an obligation, not as a duty, but it is the seriousness of breathing when you're drowning. In prayer, nobody else is going to do it for you. You've got to do it yourself. And you might as well do it now, and no counsel is going to do it for you. So there's this wonderful sense of urgency about him. And, and just the, reading those few lines, you get that sense of, of the personality of Thomas Merton. 
He was a brilliant writer, and that's one thing I think all the critics would, have, would agree about Thomas Merton. Um, he knew how to write, and if you haven't read him, I really urge you to read his own writings, his essays, his polished public essays, but also the unpublished journals, which have been coming out over the last 20, 30 years. And uh, now we have most of them, although a new... <laughs> Thomas Merton probably published more after his died than before he, while he was alive. Um, we had a new book of his came out last year. Uh, so these books keep being found. Oh, there it is. Have you, have you got it? Yes, yes. Yeah. What's it called? Yeah. About, about peace, is that the one you mean? Yeah, yeah. Peace in the post-Christian era. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's new stuff of Merton. And I bet there's some more stuff that we haven't seen. And certainly probably more journals and things. Just to give an overview of his life, he was born in 1915 in France, January the 31st. Um, he was the son of, so it's quite bohemian parents. Um, his father, Owen Merton, was a New Zealand artist. And his mother, Ruth Jenkins, was an artist from the United States. And in 1916, they moved to the United States, living in Long Island. 1921, when Merton was six, his mother died of cancer. So obviously he um, was much affected by that, and that was, some, that was part of his psyche. And in 1922, the year after his mother's death, he moved to Bermuda with his father, who went there to paint. 1925, we find him in, back in France with his father. As you can get, get, gather from this, he had a very cosmopolitan, very not metropolitan upbringing. He was fluent in French and read avidly all the French scholars. And when he was writing on spirituality in the 1950s and 60s, this gave him an advantage over his English contemporaries because the French scholarship was, was more in, in advance than the English scholarship. So you'll find that he'll refer to works that haven't been translated into English at that time. 1926, he entered the Lycée in France. In 1928, he entered the School of Ripley Court in England and then Oakham in uh, Rutland. Be familiar to some <coughs> And then in 1931, when he was 16, his father died of a brain tumour. So the poor boy, at the age of 16, lost both his parents. <coughs> his uh, godfather, Tom Bennett, was appointed his guardian, and he got a scholarship to Clare College in Cambridge. Well, in Cambridge, and we get a lot of information about his life from his famous autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain. And in Cambridge, he was a bit of a um, hellraiser, really. Um, he liked to drink, he liked to cavort around, and um, he also got a girl pregnant. So he certainly didn't, he wasn't um, a very otherworldly. He wasn't a very monastic sort of person. He was sent down from Cambridge in 1934 for, quote, raucous and irresponsible behaviour. And he returned to the United States. His um, godfather, his ward, was not very impressed by his behaviour. In 1935, he entered Columbia University, and here he seemed a little happier. He was the editor of the 1937 yearbook for Columbia, and he worked for a magazine there called The Jester, Columbian Jester. And he founded journalism something of his milieu. He found that he enjoyed journalism, he enjoyed writing, and some of his passion could, could go into that. He wrote a thesis on William Blake and received an MA in English in 1939. 
November the 16th, 1938, he was received into the Roman Catholic Church. Up to this point, he'd been a sort of tepid agnostic, really. He'd not shown any great interest in religious matters. He said that he became a Catholic after reading G.F. Levy's book, uh, Life of Gerald Manley Hopkins. Interesting that Manley Hopkins came into my mind just now. And he seemed inspired by the poetic genius of Hopkins and the life of Hopkins, something, um, perhaps again, it's that, that existential quality. Hopkins is another one who, um, seems we've missed out the whole of the 19th century. Hopkins was another one who felt that, that um, urgency of the spirit, who gave up his, um, his former life, his, his rather comfortable life, and embarked <coughs> in this rather austere life in the uh, <coughs> Society of Jesus, which would eventually kill him, die as a very young man, um, without much uh, support from the Society of Jesus, I'm afraid to say. From 1940 to 41, he taught English at St. Bonaventure University. And on December the 10th, 1941, at the age of 26, he entered the Abbey of Our Lady of Gethsemane Trappist Monastery in Kentucky. And this, I suppose, was the most significant point in his life. And for the next uh, 27 years, he would remain in that monastery. And as with a lot of great writers, think of Jung and Freud, for example, outwardly their lives were very boring, really. Not much happened outwardly. He didn't achieve much outwardly. But inwardly, um, there was an enormous uh, development that goes on for Merton over those 27 years. And he um, explores the inner life not only explores it, he writes about it. The order, the Trappists, were a group of Cistercians. Who heard, have you talked about the Cistercians on the course? Not really. Not really no. You talked about Benedictines. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank God for that. Um, <laughs> you know the, the Benedictine order and so on and so forth. Um, in the middle age, high Middle Ages, because of course, again, a course like this, we can't cover everything, there was a great desire for reform. It was like um, a second flowering that went on in um, 12th, 13th century. And we associate certain people with that, in particular Bernard of Clairvaux. Have you done a bit of him? Yeah. Yeah? Good. Um, and Bernard Clairvaux is intimately linked with the Cistercians. The Cistercians are um, a radical return, like Thrudes of Avila and John the Cross wanted to return the Carmelites to their roots. Bernard Clairvaux and the Cistercians wanted to return the Benedictines to their roots. So the Trappists, La Trappe, is a particular uh, branch of the Cistercians, um, were particularly austere. So old Merton from this hellraiser, you know, punk rock lifestyle, goes the opposite way into this, the most austere um, setup going, not just Benedictine, but Bened heavy Benedictine. And I suppose they're most famous nowadays for uh, the vow of silence, you know, that they would not speak at all and would communicate through hand signals. In 1949, he was ordained priest and he became director of scholastics and then director of novices. In 1948, just before that, his uh, autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, was published and this was a bestseller. It was uh, published in English, I think, Elected Silence. Again, another phrase from Hopkins, so you can see this this influence of Hopkins coming through again. And it made him a sort of um, celebrity, really, a monastic celebrity. And through the 50s, um, we have a series of books being produced. In 1951, The Ascent to Truth, 1953, The Sign of Jonas, 1955, No Man is an Island, 
1956, <coughs> The Living Bread, and 57, The Silent Life, 58, Thoughts. And so, I mean, basically every year he's, he's producing an, an excellent book. I mean, they're all very readable and um, very profound. But as, as we know now, as we read his journals throughout this time, he got more and more um, discontented with the uh, life in, in common in the monastery. And he wanted more and more to live as a hermit. And when we read his journals from the 50s and 60s, um, this is increasingly um, important for him. He also, at this time, um, becomes interested Something seems to happen in him. I wrote a little article in the way about this, and I was looking at all the things that were going on. But in this time in the 60s, of course, something was happening for everyone in the 60s. You know, Philip Larkin famously wrote, <laughs> Sexual intercourse began in 1963, the year I was born. <laughs> Which is fortunate. <laughs> Between the Lady Chatterley case and the Beatles' first LP. And this sense of the 60s, this, this sense of format, seemed to come into Merton's life, into the monastery. And one form it took was uh, this interest in other religions. This had been bubbling away for some time. Um, one scholar in, in Canada suggests that it comes from his interest in John of the Cross. He wrote, he wrote quite extensively on John of the Cross. So it's quite a nice link to go from John the Cross last time to Thomas Merton this time. And out of the, the nada, the interest or an interest in silent meditation, in the later books, um, the, the scenes of contemplation and thoughts in solitude do um, advocate a very uh, empty, silent meditation. He, uh, as I say, he became interested in uh, Zen. He wrote... Uh, Zen and the Birds of Appetite in 1968. As we've heard, he had interest in Hasidism, the, the mystical branch of Judaism. As we'll hear, he had an interest in Sufism, um, Confucian writing, uh, Taoist writing, The Way of Chuan Tzu was written in 1965, and um, famously his interest in uh, Buddhism, especially Tibetan Buddhism. And when he goes to Asia in 1968. He meets the, the Dalai Lama personally. Also with this, um, there are two other things. One is he falls in love with a lady. He goes to have his, um, his back done in the local hospital. And then he falls in love with a nurse. And this whole, this whole falling in love, this whole coming aware of his sexuality, his, his body, again um, promotes um, a lot of soul-searching, a lot of meditation, a lot of processing. He doesn't write about it publicly, but again we know about it now from his, his private journals and you can, you can um, follow it through his, his private journal. And the third element, which was probably the most um, difficult for uh, his superiors, not worried about sex, they weren't that bothered about that, and they weren't worried about Buddhism. And but the thing that, that they found most difficult was his engagement with political issues. And, of course, at this time we have the Vietnam War, which is a bit like the effect on the people, times whatever, uh, of the Iraq War now, this sense of the Americans going into a place and <coughs> illegally occupying and devastating a population. And uh, old Merton got rather hot under the collar about this and wrote in, uh, quite a bit uh, against the war and saying it was a Christian duty to oppose the war. Well, as I say, they don't, didn't mind about the sex, they didn't mind about the other religions, but when you start criticising government policy on bombing people, then, you know, there's a crap down from the hierarchy. Something's okay. Better, better be careful what I say. But uh, for a time, he was forbidden to write on social issues. But uh, towards the end, that um, 
censure was removed and he was again allowed to write. Um, in 1965, he was given permission to live as a hermit, and um, in many ways, I think there were some of the happiest times, certainly from his writings, they seem to be some of the happiest times of his life. And the text we'll look at in a moment was written while he was this um, forest hermit outside Gethsemane. He, um, as I say, he's popularity, his celebrity increased all the time. It's a bit of a paradox, really. And it seemed, if you listen to the monks and read, and a number of them are still alive and still around. A lot of people who knew him are still around. Um, but if you talk to them, it seems like there were two people. One was the great Thomas Merton, who everybody knew about, the spiritual guru. And then there was Father Louis, which is what his name, his name was in the, in the monastery. And some of the novices who came didn't realise that Father Louis was Thomas Merton. They only sort of twigged a few months afterwards. And uh, they were a bit surprised to find this rather, rather sort of avuncular. Um, you see the photographs of him. It looks like um, Stuart Granger, you know, he's wearing his, his, uh, his check shirt. And his, I mean, one, they used to say that when people... Um, came to the monastery and asked if it was possible to, to go to see Thomas Merton, and they all came, you know, all the great and the good. Um, what's the name of that Thai monk? Thich Nhat Hanh came along, and um, Joan Bias, the folk singer, came along. And uh, they used to say, you know, is it possible to go and see him? And um, the abbot used to say, well, if you take a four-pack of lager, he'll see you. <laughs> so there was this... There was this um, constant uh, pe people beating their way to his door to, to have a sort of have a chat, shoot the breeze on the, on the uh, patio with Thomas Merton. So a very lived person, a very live person, a very down-to-earth person, mm. but writing these very wonderful and, and luminous spiritual tracts. In 68, he seemed... Uh, to be getting a bit fed up with this, and he wanted to be somewhere even quieter. And um, he asked uh, a new abbot, the previous abbot he didn't get on very well with, if he could travel to uh, California, New Mexico, and Alaska to find uh, a new uh, monastery or find a new hermitage. He wanted to find a smaller um, place, which again is in the spirit of St. Benedict's rule. I mean, Benedict only wanted small monasteries. He didn't want big monasteries. <clears throat> the new abbot also gave him permission to fulfil one of his lifelong ambitions, which was to travel to the east, or west, if you're in America. And um, he uh, was invited to a conference in Bangkok, in Thailand, and before he went to Bangkok, he travelled through India uh, and up to the Himalayas. As I say, he met the Dalai Lama, who at that time had just fled from Tibet. He met the, the young Tibetan community. And then he travelled right the way down to India, to Sri Lanka, and um, visited the, the famous reclining Buddhas in the centre of Sri Lanka. And he, he had a sort of ecstatic experience. It's a wonderful, again, if you want to read... Um, something of Merton, a, a good, as good a place to start as any, is the Asian Journal, which is the, the journal he kept of that last journey. It is a remarkable journey. Again, the sense of urgency, because you're reading these entries, knowing that he'll be dead shortly. And there's this, this, just before he died, a few weeks before he died, he was at these um, Buddhas and had this, this ecstatic experience with the Buddhas. He died actually on the 10th of December 1968. He delivered his talk in the morning, gone back to uh, his little hut, uh, had a siesta, and then when, they, when the evening came, they went to get him, because I think he was going to give a talk in the evening, and the electric fan had fallen onto the wet floor after he'd had a shower, uh, so he was electrocuted. So it was a rather, rather sudden and, and a tragic end. And the other irony is that he um, 
uh, was taken back to the States in the cargo plane that carried the bodies of the young men who had been killed in Vietnam. So these young men for whom he'd been fighting, he came back to America uh, with them in the same aeroplane. And as I say, since his death in 68, uh, the books have come out. So can, um, there's, there's, a, there's a 12 listed here, and that's going up to 1981. So, uh, as I say, it's probably published more since, since he died than, uh, than when he was alive. So that's a brief summary of his life. Just to say a little bit about his work. A any questions or clarifications? I'm intrigued. You said you got someone pregnant. Did, did she have this child? Yes. Yeah. She <laughs> did. Yeah. Do you, you probably know more about it. Only him. because I, I was fascinated because I, I'm living in Cambridge, and as, as Peter said, he was at Cambridge University for about, well, not for very long. He hated it. He absolutely hated it. Um, partly the climate, having been in Europe. And, um, and yes, it was. He visited a pub called the Red Cow, which is now still there, um, called the Cow, I think nowadays. It's never had a very good reputation anyway. Um, and whether he met this girl there, I don't know. But um, uh, yes, he did get her pregnant. But also he had, there was another occasion in Cambridge where they actually, they, they, they made him do something sort of against Catholic doctrine, but I, I can't remember quite what it was, as if he had to, um, it was like desecration in some way, and it made a, a, a huge sort of impression on him. Um, but and whether it, that sort of stayed with him, even when he went to the States before he was received into the Catholic Church. I can't remember this in detail, but I have read about it in either a biography as well as his autobiography. Um, but he was, um, in a sense, the fact that he got this girl pregnant, I think, was all part and parcel of his, of his attitude to Cambridge and his life in Cambridge, and, and that he, having had, I think, quite a good, quite enjoyed Oakham, as far as I can remember, I didn't think Oakham was too bad, but, but, but Cambridge he, he, he really disliked. And I tried to find where he actually stayed as a student, as a student in, in lodgings, which he also and he disliked his landlady and everything. But that now was, those houses were pulled down, and, the, and part of St John's College that was built in the 19, well, late after the 1930s is, is there now, so you can't actually see where, where he stayed. But I, I did have a sort of look around one day just to see if that, that's, that's as much as I know. Sorry. And do we know, do we know what happened to the child? No, well, she... I think it was a... Died in the war. He certainly died before he could ever go to Because his brother died in the war. Yes, yeah. And um, the lady, he, the nurse, he had an affair with, is still alive, last I knew. When I wrote my article, she was still alive, uh, but she refuses to talk about it. Um, but again, who knows, she may well have written something down, and when she dies, we may, we may know more about that. She left, last I heard, she was in Hawaii, but uh, I don't know where she is now. On the subject of his death, mm -hmm. um, I saw a programme which suggested that possibly been assassinated. Yeah, that, that story's around, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, some people say that the FBI did him in oh. because of his anti-war yeah. anti stuff. Oh. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. As I say, his writing, thank you for that, his writings are wonderful. Um, after initial worries from his superiors about writing about such personal things, they encouraged him to, to write about spiritual matters. And, and in a way, they saw it as his mission, or his, um, his uh, what do you call it, his office, his charism, was to write. Um, and even when he started writing about war and peace, they, they allowed that, apart from when he got too political, when they, um, they did stop it for a time. He writes passionately on these social issues, war, racism, and the abuses of technology. And um, 
what the most extraordinary thing is, you pick this stuff up, which is 40, 50 years old, and it might as well have been written yesterday. You might as well have read it in a leader in the Times or something, because it's so relevant. You know, it still remains absolutely cutting edge. He also, as I say, moved into this dialogue with non-Christian religions, and also the dialogue um, with atheists, who was particularly <coughs> concerned, obviously, with that sort of background. You can see why all this came came um, into his life. He's a monk and a writer, a contemplative and a prophet, a hermit and a gregarious social beer-drinking, Joan Baez listening person. So, I mean, he's a man of, of contradictions. In the, the collection of writings, um, edited by Christine Botchen, she says, Merton emerges as a 20th century figure who, as the Dalai Lama recognised, reveals something of what it means to be a Christian in our times. In 1967, Merton wrote to contemplatives, the contemplative life should not be regarded as the exclusive prerogative of those who dwell in monastic walls. All can see, can find this intimate awareness and awakening, which is a gift of love and a vivifying touch of creative and redemptive power. That power which raised Christ from the dead and cleanses us from dead works to serve the living God. And that's from The Hidden Ground of Love, page 159. He always stressed the importance to say, of the incarnation, incarnational man. There's a famous um, incident that happened in Louisville, which is the nearest town to the Kentucky Monastery. This is in 1958. He was sent out to do some shopping and he wrote in his journal, yesterday in Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut Streets, suddenly realised that I loved all these people and that none of them were or could be totally alien to me. As if waking from a dream, the dream of my separateness, of the special vocation to be different, my vocation does not really make me different from the rest of men or put me in a special category except artificially, juridically. I am still a member of the human race and what more glorious destiny is there for us since the word was made flesh and became too a member of the human race. So it's very incarnational, his spirituality. And I think out of this comes his uh, passionate social commitment, uh, the Vietnam War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the race uh, strife in, in the southern states. And as I say, um, when you read his writings, um, even though they're written some 40 years ago, they have um, a terrible, frightening resonance to our own times. And the times we live in now, times of violence, times of destruction, bombing, torture, uh, suicide bombers, you know, uh, all these terrible things happening. And more than ever, I think, the, the voice of Merton is relevant. He writes a lot about violence and a bit like René Girard. The, I know the Merton Society has run a number of very good conferences on René Girard, the French thinker, and Merton. And, seeing the, and I think this is one aspect of Merton that's been um, resuscitated, or has been resuscitated in the last few years, is his insight into the nature of violence and Christian responses to violence. This is in the Vietnamese edition of No Man is an Island. Violence rests on the assumption that the enemy and I are entirely different. The enemy is evil and I am good. The enemy must be destroyed but I must be saved. But love sees things differently. It sees that even the enemy suffers from the same sorrows and limitations that I do. That we both have the same hopes the same needs, the same aspiration for peaceful and harmonious human life, and that death is the same for both of us. 
then love may perhaps show me that my brother is not really my enemy and that war is both his enemy and my enemy. War is our enemy. Then peace becomes possible. And he talks about the violence of the system and what the, we talk about now is institutional sin. This is a, um, he gives a Hasidic uh, story from, uh, this is a preface to Faith and Violence, written in 1968. The Hasidic rabbi Baal Shem Tov once told the following story. Two men were travelling through a forest. One was drunk, the other was sober. As they went, they were attacked by robbers, beaten, robbed of all they had, even their clothing. When they emerged, people asked them if they got through the wood without trouble. Drunken man said, everything was fine, nothing went wrong, we had no trouble at all. They said, how does it happen that you are <coughs> naked and you are covered with blood? He did not have an answer. <coughs> the sober man said, don't believe him, he's drunk. It was terrible. Robbers beat us without mercy and took everything we had. Be warned by what happened to us and look out for yourselves. For some faithful and for unbelievers too, faith seems to be a kind of drunkenness, an anaesthetic that keeps you from realising, believing that anything can ever go wrong. Such faith, remember that Hasidic man hanging by the hair before the hell, such faith can be immersed in a world of violence and make no <coughs> objection. The violence is perfectly all right. It is quite normal. Unless, of course, it happens to be exercised by Negroes, that is. Then it must be put down instantly by superior force. The drunkenness of this kind of faith, whether in a religious message or merely in a political ideology, enables us to go through life without seeing that our own violence is a disaster and that the overwhelming force by which we seek to assert ourselves and our own self-interest may well be our ruin and everybody else's ruin. Is faith a narcotic dream in a world of heavily armed robbers or is it an awakening? Is faith a convenient nightmare in which we are attacked and obliged to destroy our attackers? What if we awaken to discover that we are the robbers and our destruction comes from the root of hate that lies in ourselves? I say it. <laughs> Striking stuff, you know, and it's not, and it, he's, in this respect, I think he's learnt from all his, meeting all his mystics and his Zen masters and everything, because he knows how to, pack a punch and, and use these stories. He always uses these stories to, to make his point. But he wasn't just an angry young man. You know, he wasn't just fire and brimstone and, and on the uh, anti-war march in Trafalgar Square. What is wonderful about it, I think if it was just that, we wouldn't be reading him. Because what I think he does, he offers a, a Christian response. It's, you know, I, mean, I don't know whether you find this, but I find, lived in Lash and all sorts of places, the homeless people, and you find you've got 20-year-olds and they're upset with the system and they want to change the world. And you don't say, yeah, they're their dear, you know, go and do a degree of theology and, and, and do whatever. They want to do something, they want to get on with it. And in Merton, you get that fire that's there, that fire, that need to change the world. But he understands that such social activism has to take place within a Christian context. And, and Julie, Julie knows this. When you're working in L'Arche, one of the big things is burnout. When you're working with anyone or any Christian group who are involved in social activism, one of the big things is there comes a point where you just collapse and it's happened to us all. And again, if nothing else survived with Thomas Merton, this one letter, and again he wrote voluminous letters, which was to a peace activist, and it's quite a famous letter, so I apologise for those of you who know it already, but it is a great letter and it's well <coughs> worth reading. It was basically to a peace activist, Jim Forrest, 
who's actually still alive. Again, it's great to talk about people who are still alive. At the time, he was 20 years old, and he was working in Dorothy Day's commune, the, the Catholic worker community. And um, he had uh, been very much involved in the social activism in the 60s, um, tearing down and everything. But he had a, what we would call a burnout experience. He, he just felt very depressed and listless, couldn't carry on. He wrote to Merton, completely out of the blue, I mean, Burton didn't know this fella, and Merton writes back to him, do not depend on the hope of results. When you are doing the sort of work you have taken on, essentially an apostolic work, you may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and even achieve no result at all. If not, perhaps results completely opposite to those you expect. As you get used to this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, the truth of the work itself. You're fed up with words, and I don't blame you. I'm nauseated them myself, a bit rich going from here. <laughs> I, am also, I am also, to tell the truth, nauseated with ideals and with causes. This sounds like heresy. But I think you'll understand what I mean. It is so easy to get engrossed with ideas and slogans and myths that in the end one is left holding the bag empty with no trace of meaning left in it. The Catholic Peace Fellowship is not going to stop the war in Vietnam. It's not even going to cause very many Catholics to think differently about the war in Vietnam. It is simply going to become another image among images in the minds of most Catholics something around which are centred some vague emotional reactions for or against. Nevertheless, you will probably, if you continue as you do, begin the laborious job of changing the national mind and opening up the national conscience. How far will you get? God alone knows. All that you and I can ever hope for in terms of physical results is that we will have perhaps contributed something to a clarification of Christian truth in this society. And as a result, a few people may have got straight about some things and opened up to the grace of God and made some sense out of their lives. As for the big results, these are not in your hands and they're not in mine, but they can suddenly happen and we can share in them. But there's no point in building our lives on this personal <coughs> satisfaction, which may be denied us after all, and which, after all, is not that important anyway. So the next step in the process is for you to see that your own thinking about what you're doing is crucially important. You're probably striving to build yourself an identity in your work and your witness. You're using it, so to speak, to protect yourself against nothingness, against annihilation. No. Hair business. That is not the right use of your work. All the good that you will do will come not from you, but from the fact that you have allowed yourself in the obedience of faith to be used by God's love. Think of this more and gradually you'll be free from the need to prove yourself and you can be more open to the power that will work through you without you even knowing it. The great thing after all is to live not to pour out your life in the service of a myth. And we turn the best things into myths. If you can get free from the domination of causes and just serve Christ's truth, you'll be able to do more and will be less crushed by the inevitable disappointments. The real hope then is not in something we think we can do, but in God who is making something good out of it in some way we cannot see. If we can do his will, we will be helping in this process, but we will not necessarily know all about it beforehand. Mm -hmm. February the 21st, 1965. So this wonderful, you know, great spiritual director, you can see why they made him the novice master, and this great ability to hold the um, social apostolate and the um, need for an internal meditative discipline. What I might 
do is I'll do the rain and rhinoceros after the break. That's the sorry, <laughs> that's the piece of text uh, and I've given it to some of you to read. And I'll do that after the break and then we'll listen to the tape. Um, what I'll do now is just talk a little bit about the Sufism. The Sufism is the um, mystical element within Islam and um, various explanations are given for, for the, the, the word and right at the beginning of Islam and we hear talk of people using the word Sufism um, and using it inappropriately and they use, they often refer or refer back to one verse from the Quran, he who knows himself knows the Lord. And in the uh, 60s, Merton became particularly interested in, in various Sufi um, texts and documents. He wrote some poems on some of which are in that, that compilation. One of them, which I've mentioned already, <coughs> is the use of paradox. Within the Sufi writings, we find this importance of um, contradiction, and we find it as well in the, in the Christian text, in, in Eckhart, for example. Another is the sense of relationship between faith and reason, that there are the imperatives of reason, the development of the head, but there's also the development of the heart. <coughs> also the use of um, uh, breathing, repeating the word, what they, they call dikir. The use of um, or talk of annihilation, and we've already heard the hair bit, the sense of the nothingness, the urgency. <coughs> but most importantly, the, the power of love the importance of love. And for the Sufis and for Merton, love is at the heart of, um, of what's going on. It's like an intelligence of the heart, the importance of developing the heart. What do I think I'll do then? I think we'll start reading the Rain and Rhinoceros and uh, we'll finish it off the break and then I'll play the tape. This text is written in, it was actually published after his death, uh, Raids on the Unspeakable, and published in 1977. And it's a meditation in his hut in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the reason I've chosen for, for, for you, and the reason I want us to read it, is that I think it encapsulates a lot of the themes I've talked about. We have Merton as the solitary, Merton in his little <coughs> hermit hut. We have Merton as the literary scholar and great writer. Merton is the monk, Merton is the psychologist, Merton responding to other faiths, Merton reacting to the modern world and providing a critique of that, what we would talk about nowadays is globalisation, Merton as the ecological man, man who realised the importance of creation and Merton as the commentator on social action. I'll read the first passage and then we'll, we'll share it out amongst them. Let me say this, before rain becomes a utility that they can plan and distribute for money. By they, I mean the people who can, cannot understand that rain is a festival, 
who do not appreciate its gratuity, who think that what has no price has no value, that what cannot be sold is not real, so that the only way to make something actual is to place it on the market. The time will come when they will sell you even your rain. It's already happened, Tom. <laughs> At the moment, it is still free, and I am in it. I celebrate its gratuity and its meaninglessness. The rain I am in is not like the rain of the cities. It fills the woods with an immense and confused sound. It covers the flat roof of the cabin and its porch with insistent and controlled rhythms. And I listen because it reminds me again and again that the whole world runs by rhythms I have not yet learned to recognise. Rhythms that are not those of the engineer. And he goes on to describe the rain pattering on the roof of the, of the, hermit, uh, of the hermitage. And then he talks about his um, little lamp, his little, um, what would you call it? Storm lantern, okay. And um, it's called a Coleman lamp, lantern. I think Jackie's going to read that first. Page 11. This has already been brought home to me with a wallop by my Coleman lantern. Beautiful lamp. It burns white gas and sings viciously, but gives out a splendid green light in which I read Philozenus, a 6th century Syrian hermit. Philozenus fits in with the rain and the festival of night. Of this, more later. Meanwhile, what does my Coleman lantern tell me? Coleman's philosophy is printed on the cardboard box, which I have guiltily not shellacked as I was supposed to, and which I have tossed in the woodshed behind the hickory junks. Coleman says that the light is good and has a reason. <coughs> Stretches days to give more hours of fun. Can't I just be in the woods without any special reason? Just being in the woods, at night, in the cabin, is too excellent to be justified or explained. It just is. There are always a few people who are in the woods at night, in the rain, because if there were not, the world would have ended, and I am one of them. We are not having fun. We are not having anything. We are not stretching our days. And if we had fun, it would not be measured by ours. Though, as a matter of fact, that is what fun seems to be a state of diffuse excitation that can be measured by the clock and stretched by an appliance. Can you just read through to the end of that passage? There is no clock that can measure the speech of this rain that falls all night on the drowned and lonely forest. Of course, at 3.30am, the SAC plane goes over, red light winking low under the clouds, skimming the wooded summits on the south side of the valley, loaded with strong medicine. Very strong. Strong enough to burn up all these woods and stretch our hours of fun into eternities. That's the plane carrying the nuclear, nuclear bombs. <laughs> then he starts thinking about this hermit. So we've got him in his place making this comment, you know, this wonderful meditation just coming from this cardboard box of his life. And then he starts thinking of this uh, Philoxenos, um, Maggie, I think. Yes. And that brings me to Philoxenos, a Syrian who had fun in the 6th century without benefit of appliances, still less of nuclear deterrence. <laughs> Philoxenos, in his ninth memoir, chapter, on poverty, to dwellers in solitude, says that there is no explanation and no justification for the solitary life, since it is without a law. To be a contemplative is therefore to be an outlaw. 
as was Christ, as was Paul. One who is not alone, says Philoxenos, has not discovered his identity. He seems to be alone, perhaps for he experiences himself as individual, but because he is willingly enclosed and limited by the laws and illusions of collective existence, he has no more identity than an unborn child in the womb. Thank you. So he goes on to um, present this wonderful meditation on the nature of the, the solitary, the monos. Um, page 16. It is in this sense that the hermit, according to Paraxenos, imitates Christ. For in Christ, God takes to himself the solitude and dereliction of man, every man. From the moment Christ went out into the desert to be tempted, the loneliness, the temptation, and the hunger of every man became the loneliness, temptation, and hunger of Christ. But in return, the gift of truth with which Christ dispelled the three kinds of illusion offered him in his temptation, security, reputation, and power, can become also our own truth, if we can only accept it. It is offered to us also in temptation. You too go out into the desert, said Philoxenos, having with you nothing of the world, and the Holy Spirit will go with you. See the freedom with which Jesus hath gone forth, and go forth like him. See where he has left the rule of men. Leave the rule of the world where he has left the law, and go out with him to fight the power of error. And where is the power of error? We find it it was, after all, not in the city, but in ourselves. So again, he brings us back all the time to self-reflection. <clears throat> and again, uh, you'll hear this in the lecture, this way he, he's very rooted in the church fathers and mothers, and especially desert fathers and mothers, and like Philoxenos, who nobody's ever heard of. And, and you'll hear him mention a string of other ones, but he makes them so relevant. And, and then within a couple of pages, on page 19, he's talking about the contemporary absurdist um, dramatist Ionescu, who's actually the play, the rhinoceros, is on at the moment in London. Mm -hmm. um, I've never seen it, but that's sort of, yeah. So, thank you, in all. Ionescu protested that the New York production of Rhinoceros as a farce was a complete misunderstanding of his intention. It is a play not merely against conformism, but about totalitarianism. The rhinoceros is not an amiable beast, and with him around the fun, ceases and things begin to get serious. Everything has to make sense and be totally useful to the totally obsessive operation. At the same time, Ernesto was criticised for not giving the audience something positive to take away with them, instead of just refusing the human adventure. Presumably, rhinoceritis <coughs> is the latest in human adventure, he replied. They, the spectators, leave in a void. And that was my intention. <laughs> it is the business of a free man to pull himself out of this void by his own power and not by the power of other people. In this, Ionesco comes very close <laughs> to Zen and the Christian Eremitism. Thank you. Yeah, wonderful, isn't it? So he sort of finishes, I'm finished now, by sort of bringing this, this absurdist idea, this meditation on solitude and, and uselessness. You know, it's a big, big theme with Brother Patrick, I'm sure he's told you about being useless. Did he talk to you about being useless? Uh, that's one of his big, big things. He does a whole lecture on that. I'll have to get him back. Get him back for that one. 
And this is the end of the text. The rain has stopped. The afternoon sun slants through the pine trees. And how those useless needles smell in the clear air. A dandelion, long out of season, has pushed itself into bloom between the smashed leaves of last summer's daylilies. The valley resounds with the totally uninformative talk of creeks and wild water. Then the quails begin their sweet whistling in the wet bushes. Their noise is absolutely useless, and so is the delight I take in it. There is nothing I would rather hear, not because it is a better noise than other noises, but because it is the voice of the present moment, the present festival. Yet even here the earth shakes. Over at Fort Knox, the rhinoceros is having fun. <laughs>